The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are good to bring us all into your house amongst your family that gathered us today to worship, to hear from you. You are good to do that. Thank you. And we ask that you would send your spirit to be among us now and do what we can't do on our own, what I can't do, what none of us can do, to make ourselves grow. We pray that you would send your spirit among us, Father, in power to grow us and to change us, to mature us, perhaps even to save some of us here today. Well, do you know what work needs to be done, what the next step is, and how this passage before us today can be used in that process? And so I ask you, carry the day today in the individual hearts of people here, mine included, would you arrest my heart and its wandering tendencies and give me clarity and focus as I speak. Give us all clarity and focus as we listen and think along with you. Lord, we are in need of you moment by moment and day by day. We are in need of you to make us fully, one day completely, what we are to be, glorious image bearers. We are fallen now in need of help. So come and pour it out on us. Lord, help. Open your word. Make it clear. Bring out particular points for particular one of, ones of us. But, but do a work, Lord, I pray, to make us individually and corporately a people pleasing to you. Speak, we ask. Father, glorify the Son and build your church. We pray this in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the last half of 1 Samuel chapter 10, where we find another stage in this process of Saul becoming the first king of Israel. This began back in chapter 8, when Israel asked for a king facing an aging Samuel. They, they said, we need a king, and so they asked him for one, which was a problem not because a king in itself was a problem, but because as the Lord made clear to Samuel there in that chapter, in asking to receive a king, what they were also saying was that they wanted to get rid of God as king over them. They, they were done submitting to his reign over them, over them, done trusting him, done with the vulnerability that that created. They wanted nothing more to do with it. They wanted a man to lead them on earth. And despite the fact that that was a sinful request, because of its motives, God still agreed to it because he was going to use it, in part to teach them and turn them to him, but, but in part because he saw their predicament and knew that they needed a deliverer and he was going to raise up one, going to raise up a king to be the savior of the people. So that's what he did, raised up Saul and providentially drew Saul to Samuel, we saw that, so that in the end Samuel could anoint Saul. That story was last week in verses 1 to 16. 
Samuel pours oil on Saul's head and then tells him of three signs that are going to happen to him on the way home, two of which provide some backdrop to the, the main one, the third one, in which God pours out his powerful presence on Saul, rushes on him with the Spirit of God, changes him, gives him what he needs for the task that lies ahead, spiritual fight that is ahead of him, the spiritual growth that he needs. Saul needs that. God gives it to him. We need that. God gives that to his people today, filling Christians with the Spirit. And even, we we pray, we hope, giving outpourings of his Spirit, times of great refreshing and revival. So we looked at last week. It happened. It was a powerful, amazing thing, but it's still a secret. The two people in Israel know what's going on. Samuel and Saul. People saw it. People knew something was going on, but they did not know what it was until today's passage where the secret is revealed to all of Israel and Israel is then confronted and and we, by extension, are confronted with a question. There's something that's revealed here in our passage. There's a a great unveiling of this is the king. So there's something to be revealed to us and to understand and to receive, a, a proclamation, an announcement. But then there's a question put to us right after that, will you accept him, yes or no? This is the one that God has chosen. Now your response. That's what's before us today in 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 to 27. I'm going to read the passage and then pass back through it to clarify it before making some observations. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, Present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gebeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace. The word of the Lord in First Samuel 10. 
text begins by locating us back again at that important place, Mizpah. This is a place that Samuel regularly journeyed to, so it was, it was a common assembly point, but you perhaps remember it as the place that God won for them the great battle, the great Ebenezer battle. It's a place they're familiar with, and, and Samuel summons them there, not, not to himself, he summons them to the Lord. They are coming to face the Lord and to hear a word from the Lord to them. And what they hear at first is hard. Starts in verse 18, the Lord recounts for them how I myself, and the text emphasizes that first person pronoun I, I myself, he says, brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the nations that oppressed you. But you, and then grammatically it's emphasizing the you, you, however, have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses, and in so doing have said, give us a king. See the contrast there. This is what I have done, and in return, what you have done. A little confrontation in that. Now, therefore, come here. What's going to follow? If you have this conversation in your home, one thing follows. <laughs> a spanking. <laughs> this is what I have done in all of my great mercy and grace to deliver you. And what you have done is, so come here. And I'm going to give you exactly what you ask for. This is, it's remarkable. Because it's not anger, and it's not judgment, and it's not wrath. It's a proclamation, an identifying of this good king, the one they asked for and the one the Lord's giving them. It should be unexpected. So he draws them near. And note, this is not the choosing of the king. It is the identifying of the king. He's already been chosen several chapters before. We know, we've known for a while now that Saul's the guy. He's just proclaiming him. He's announcing them to them in a way that they will not be able to miss. This is the one. A way that Israel was familiar with this, this casting of lots to draw out from tribes and clans. They, they surely knew what was going on when, when he gathered them all together and when Saul wandered off. They knew it was coming. So they draw lots by, by tribe and then by clan and by family and down to the very guy, Saul. Except when they figure out that it's Saul, he's identified by name, but he's not there. They can't find him. And so they then have to ask again of the Lord, okay, that's who it is, but where is he now? And he tells them he's hidden himself among the baggage. Not exactly an auspicious start to the kingdom. But it's not all bad either. And you take another look at this story here. It, if you have a children's Bible, if you've ever looked at a children's Bible, and they have this story in it, I have a particular picture in my mind, you probably have a picture of a great big oaf, because he's a big man, cowering among some suitcases, afraid, and we're supposed to read the story and just be ashamed of him, just kind of hang our heads. But it's, it's not quite like that. We know from previous, from chapter 9, that Saul at this point in his life is a very humble man. And when he hears the first mention that he might be the king, he has no personal confidence that, that little old me from my little old family, from my little old clan, from my little old tribe, how can we possibly do what needs to be done? I'm just me. 
And he knows from chapter 10 that, that God is powerfully at work here. God pours out the Spirit on him. He knows that. He senses it. He, he experiences it. But he also knows that that was the Lord, not me. Me, myself, I, I don't have it. But he came to Mizpah. Everybody knew what was going to happen at Mizpah. And he came. And when they start to narrow it down, he goes and hides among the baggage. But those aren't suitcases. The word there is almost always used to describe military equipment. Israel brought its swords and shields. Because remember, last time they came to Mizpah and gathered, the Philistines attacked. They know they're going to get a king. Maybe this is going to be a war. They come ready to be armed. And he goes and hides among the, wep- among the weaponry. So he's sitting there. Swords and shields. And if you've ever been to a wedding where the groom starts to get cold feet, in a wedding that you know is is good and right, there's something that can be good and right about that moment as the man sits there and counts the cost and begins to think about the responsibility, what's about to happen here. At the wedding, I mean, I've been there with people who I know should get married and I've seen the groom coming unglued. And then he comes back together and gets married, and and it's right. Well, this is a man who's starting to to contemplate, this means war. I'm okay at chasing down the donkeys. I've been a farmer my whole life. But we have the weaponry here because this means war. We are picking someone who will go out at the head of this people. Who is equal to such a task? There's an appropriate, I think, counting of the cost. Now, there's certainly some, some, some humble attitude, some, some timidity here. But he's not cringing and terrified because when they come and find him and take and stand him among the people, they do not instantly lose hope thinking, why is this guy crying? He inspires confidence. He does, he's not unglued. He accepts it. And they look at him. Long live the king. And then Samuel writes down the rights and the privileges of of the kingship, what will be required of the king as the second in command beneath the Lord, ruler over the Lord's people, what will be required of the people in submission to the king and to the king's king. He writes this down, puts it before the Lord, who is going to be judge over it, and then sends them all home, Saul included. Saul's been proclaimed king, announced as king, but his coronation is not yet. So he goes home to Gebeah, along with some men of distinction, some men of valor who the Lord had touched, moved to follow him and be a part of his, of his kingdom. And also, as always at Gebeah, there are some worthless fellows who say, loser. How can this guy save us? And they despise him and offer him no gift. High offense. And Saul graciously, humbly, lets the affront ride. Again, I think that something that we need to get through our minds, because we've read the end of the story, Saul declines, but Saul starts off well. 
And we see it here. He's humble. He's patient. And he lets the affront ride. He held his peace. That's the passage. And make two observations about it. One, what the Lord has done, and then one about how we are to respond to it. The, the challenge, the question before us. First, we see the Lord in mercy presents to us the king. That's what he does. The Lord in mercy presents, he declares, he proclaims, he announces, he reveals, he presents to us his chosen king. We begin by emphasizing that mercy piece because it is at the beginning and the end of the passage. At the end, it's what we just saw with Saul holding his peace in the face of this affront. He doesn't give them what they deserve. He's just been proclaimed king. He could deal with that, but he doesn't. He lets it go. So there's mercy at the end, but even more so, there is there is great mercy displayed at the very beginning of this passage from the Lord, where he says, I myself have been the deliverer of you. And you yourselves have rejected me. We've seen this before. It's always been discussed, but it's always been between Samuel and the Lord. This is the first time the Lord confronts the people directly with this. I have been so very good, and look how you have repaid me. Why does he begin like this? Well, to frame what he does, to make it all the more amazing. To highlight for his people something profound about who he is. He is a God of great mercy. He is so very good and so very patient and so very slow to anger and so abounding in steadfast love. This God of the Bible is not a God who is out to get you. He is not a God who is vindictive, who is fuming, who is angry, who is constantly contemplating your demise. He's a God of mercy. He is, don't forget this also, He is indeed just. He is indeed righteous. He does, in fact, rightly settle all accounts. That, that is to be sure. Don't, don't miss that. But we must, we must think of this God, of our God, as a God who is, rather than being eager to get people, is eager to forgive people. Wants to. He is a God who is determined to do His people good, And so gives them a king because they need one. Even though why they asked was wrong, how they asked was wrong, they need one. And so he is determined to give them one. And we need to be sure we understand what a king is. A a king, sometimes we perhaps think of a a king as a a ruler in a heavy-handed sense. A ruler or a controller. 
You can get an idea what a king is by looking at the words in verses 18 and 19. A deliverer from the hand of all those who oppress. A savior from calamity and distress. That's what God is. And so the one that God will make king will be like God. A savior and a deliverer. This is what humankind no matter who you are, it's what humankind needs. We each, you, need a power over you. A great authority, a great power over you. To deliver you and to save you. To save you, to, to save you from your own folly. And to guide you into wisdom. To steer you and to hold you onto the path of righteousness because you are prone to wander. You and every person needs a power over you to, with great authority, step into your world and to protect you from all that would assail you and all that would destroy you from outside and even from inside. We who are adults, we often think children need that sort of thing. Children need a power over them, happens to be me, the parent, need a power over them to instruct them in the way they should go and and hold them, discipline them to it, and to protect them from the threats outside and the threats inside, their own wayward hearts, the sicknesses that arise in them, the the people of the world out there who take advantage of them, they need that power I I don't. I've grown up now. Men and women, we all need that. We all are prone to wander. We all are vulnerable to folly. We all are weak and perishing. We need a king. And in mercy, God in mercy says, I will give one. It is a good thing. A good thing that he has created and in this passage is proclaiming a ruler over you. To deliver you, to save you, a savior king. He so very much wants his people to meet this savior king and to come under his reign that he works to identify him through casting of lots, through even locating him physically among the baggage, later to moving certain men in their hearts to incline them to follow him. He very much is working to close the gap between the people of Israel and his chosen king Saul so that they can become people, subjects of this king. For their good, in mercy. It's Saul initially. It's Saul the one that he's focusing on here. But we have read the rest of the story and we know that Saul fails. 
We have to keep in mind as we're reading the Old Testament story, particularly as we're reading the story of the kings, we have to keep in mind that we are on a path that is always going somewhere. There is a king. He is presented. The people are brought to him, and it goes well for a while, but eventually this king fails. He breaks the requirements of the kingship. And so we are sent on that path looking for another one, looking for the next king. Until in time, in mercy, God graciously put his finger on another king, on the great king. Think of how he worked to draw all of our attention to and to announce this one as king through countless prophetic utterances. He told us his tribe, Judah. Told us his family line, David. Told us his hometown, Bethlehem. Told us his way of life, sinless righteousness and justice and love. Told us his way of death, hung up on a tree to die among the wicked, buried with a rich man. Marker after marker after marker. This is the one. He's pointing him out. This is the one. But where is he? In mercy? He doesn't just tell us this is his name. He introduces us to him in time and space. Necessary because when this one came, he came humbly like a servant with nothing to look at. Wouldn't have drawn anybody's attention except that God caused the Spirit to rest on him so that in great power from this anointed one, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, captives set free, truth proclaimed, nature commanded, the demonic suppressed. This is the one, the ruler. And then he takes his crown thorns and is enthroned on a cross and people say how can this one save us loser they scorn him and reject him until he's raised comes forth alive again the conqueror This is the one. And as I say all that to you, I know that for most of us here, we're we're thinking, yeah, I know. I know. For most of us, some of you don't. And so I plead with you, God has gone through, he's jumped through many hoops to narrow it down, to focus your attention on this one named Jesus, the ruler you need. Come to him. But for most of us, we've come, you've heard this story, you know. Well, let me ask you. It is one thing to say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is ruler, Jesus is authority. But I I would suggest that many of us who are Christians, many of us live in relationship to this king and relationship to this kingdom very much like we live in relationship to the President of the United States or the, the federal government. 
What did you have to do with the federal government yesterday? Odds are nothing that you're aware of. Did you even think about the president yesterday? Probably not. I did because I was preparing this, but probably most of us didn't. Take it one step further. If you're an American citizen living overseas, as I happen to be during the the election where the, the thing went on for weeks and weeks and weeks past the election date, I think probably America was consumed by that, and in the country where I lived, I forgot about it most of the time because it just wasn't news. How often do we really give thought to this government that we live under, this authority that is leader over us? I want to ask you, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. You're a member of His kingdom. So what? Have you thought about it recently? Does it matter to you? God, the Father, wants to draw all of the world's attention to this ruler, to to clarify, to announce, to proclaim, this is the one. And there is in that both a a warning and, and a great hope. There is a warning offered saying, this for all of the world, this is the one to whom we must all give account. He is the ruler. There are no other rulers. At His name, every knee will bow. So there's there's a sobering in that. While He is yet in mercy, holding His peace, there is a time coming when that will be set aside and justice will be done by this ruler. So there, there is a message of warning out there, but there is also to us, to we who are Christians, there is also an offer of great hope. You live in the kingdom of the king. Do you understand that? The king. The one who rules. Everything through whom all things were made, by whose power all things continue to exist, to whom everything will give account, you live under his reign in his kingdom and you are his friend. That is good. Oh, that you would remember it. That you would think about it. That it would rise up in your eyes as you face trouble and as you are tempted to put your hope in other things. There is a king. He has a kingdom and it is real, it is here, it is spreading. Are you conscious of it? Do you, oh, and I, I plead with you, all I can do is, is ask you and pray for you and plead with you to live as citizens of somewhere else. 
Do you believe this? Do you know that all that you see, all that is offered to you right here is perishing and passing away and there is no point in anchoring a ship to it? May God give eyes that are open, ears that hear. And may we trust Him and not live by sight. This is what brings us to the second point. Because it is one thing God announces and identifies this one is the king. This one is the king you need. This one is the savior. This one is the deliverer. This one is the hope. This one is the judge. That's one thing. But then there is a question put before us. How we respond to him. That's the second point. An urging to you. Embrace the reign of Christ no matter what your eyes see. Embrace the reign of Christ, no matter what your eyes see. God has been clear to proclaim to this people in this passage. He has narrowed it down through this casting of lots. He has identified where the guy is hiding. He's been clear to identify this is the one. And the people who rejected him at the beginning continue to reject him all the way through. Verse 19 puts it very plainly. They reject him. That problem remains at the end, not just with a few worthless fellows. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite clear there at the end, how can this fellow save us? How can this guy save us? That's a rejection of God. It might seem like a rejection of Saul, a doubting of Saul, but when God has been so specific to put his finger on one, it is no longer just about Saul, it's about the God who owns the finger. It's the rejection of God. But the problem is actually even in all of the masses who embrace Saul. Look closely at them. Why do they embrace him? Begin at 23 and 24. What do they see about him? His physical stature, his outward appearance. And unfortunately, that's the thing that Samuel emphasizes for them. Do you see him? Look at this guy. There's no one like him among the people. Which is not a statement about Saul's love of God. It's not a statement about Saul's dependence on the Spirit of God. It's not a statement about Saul's trust of the Word of God. It's a statement about Saul's size. You look at this guy, he's bigger than everybody else. Didn't God make a good choice? Yes, indeed, God has made a wonderful choice. Long live the king. As if he needs a guy with muscles to help out the Holy Spirit. This, this point becomes even more pronounced later when he picks the boy David. Over all of his bigger, older brothers, he picks the boy, David. I don't, I don't need muscles. I don't need size. I don't need anything. I need a heart. But the people are looking at outward appearance, and that's why they approve, except for others who look at outward appearance and don't approve. 
The common element is they're all looking at outward appearance. I will decide, according to what I see, if God has made a good choice about how and through whom to build his kingdom and protect his world. And based upon that, then, I will decide in joyful submission, good job, God, I submit, or not. That's the common thing in this passage. And that's the question before us. Are we like that or not? Now, we're not we're not supporting a king in the same way that they are, but we are... We are, every single one of us, we are making a decision about supporting a king. God has put before us this one. Are you in or out? That's before us every day. This one is my ruler. This is his kingdom. He builds it. You follow him. Are you in or out? And to put it simply, we are prone to live by faith and not by sight. And commonly say, no. Occasionally, that is, a high-handed sort of rebellion sort of no, a rejection of God. And if that's you, then, then there's obviously a word here, stop. Occasionally it's, it's high-handed. I don't want anything to do with God or with God's anointed one, Christ. Maybe that's you. But more commonly, I think, those of us who profess to be Christians, I think more commonly, we often are not even aware of how much we live by sight and not by faith, thereby rejecting God's king and God's kingdom. We don't realize that we do what comes naturally, naturally to the flesh, and unwittingly reject him, questioning and doubting and fearing Grumbling, complaining, fighting to change things. If you think about it, even the very fact that you haven't thought about the king and his kingdom, haven't thought about how should I give the king his honor, how should I follow him in obedience, how should I work to expand his kingdom, the idea that that has not come up in days or weeks is itself a setting aside of the king. Is that you? Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but as I look at my own life, I constantly find a couple of indicators. I constantly find worry, and frustration. Maybe you don't. Maybe there are other things in your life. Or maybe everything's going just great for you. And, and you're in line with the king because you like what you see. Well, wait and see what happens when it falls apart. But I find in my life at least worry and frustration at every turn. 
When you find worry and frustration, is that not inside of you a a rising up of, this is not right. What you have done, O king, is wrong. How can this be the kingdom? How can this be the king's leading? Or if this is the kind of king you are to lead me into this, Sometimes there is, there is hurt or fright in your life. How could he let this happen to me? How could he, who is supposed to be good, who is supposed to be merciful, who knows everything, not intervene to stop that? Look at that closely. I I am not saying that everything is good and and hunky-dory in the world. But I'm asking you, look at that closely and say, is there not in us often a rising up of a, what you might call it, a performance review of God? How could he make that happen? If he was good, would he lead me here? If he was strong, this wouldn't be the case. Men and women, there is a king. He has a kingdom. It is going to cast out every other kingdom of this world. The American kingdom, your own personal kingdom, it is perishing. To align yourself with this king, to submit to him happily. It is not just what you must do, it is the only hope for you. In mercy he has given a king, pointed him out to you, and calls you to him. And when you are inclined to look around at the world and say, this cannot be right. I would ask you to consider, these are the words of an old hymn writer who who knew a lot about difficult life. His name is William Cooper. He wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The frowning providence is the thing that often in our lives causes us to question, to doubt this king and to turn away from him, to say, how can this one save? How can this be right? This is, this is not good. Brothers and sisters, behind that frowning providence, there is a smiling face. And when in those moments you doubt it, may God proclaim to you by His Spirit, there is a King that I have appointed and sent 
to deliver you, to save you. He died to make good my wrath claim on you. To pay it. To satisfy it. He lives to give to you joy never ending. Behind the frowning providence, that God, that Savior stands. A good God who is for you. Who means to be blessing and hope evermore for you. Behind a frowning providence is a God who says, I, I myself have surely borne your sorrows and carried your griefs and your iniquities to the cross and have set you free. I am the king. I am building a kingdom. As you look at it now, maybe you don't understand that. Don't live by sight. Live by faith in me. That, that is his call to you, Christian. He has clearly identified this Jesus is the Lord. Trust Him no matter what your eyes see. Trust Him when you see sorrow. Trust Him when you see confusion. Trust Him when you see and experience pain. Trust Him because in the cross He has said, I am for you. This is the king. Embrace his kingship. Embrace his reign. Let me pray and then give you a couple minutes to pray. Father, would you take your word And make clear to us your merciful nature that wants us to have a king. And would you then speak to each one of us here and ask each person the question, are you receiving this king's reign, yes or no? For some, Lord, who have not trusted you ever, I pray that you would open their eyes And show them hope in this great ruler. But for your people who are here, those already in relationship to you, Lord, make us aware of the kingdom that we overlook, the king who deserves our allegiance. Speak to your people now in the next couple of moments. Show us if there is sin. Show us what to confess and repent. If there is encouragement and hope, Lord, that's needed, lift up the hearts of people who are languishing. Assure them of your rule for good over them. Build your church, Lord, I pray. Thank you that you have sent a king. Help us to trust him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org 
or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.